like any questions you have whatsoever go for it because I imagine anyone who's listening will also be asking as well because when I read through my notes I'm like this is mad The History in Polyam and Pow's Podcast in association with thehistorycorner.org Podcasts, Articles, Reviews Greetings must not get one's knickers in a twist. Hello and welcome to the History Emporium and Powers podcast. Now I'm honoured again to be joined by Paddy. Um, this week we're going to be talking about the Troubles, uh, a topic that has fascinated me for a long time since I uh, have been viewing it as a, as a kid being brought up in the 90s. So hello Patrick, how are you? Hello, um, I'm great, I'm great. I'm honoured to be here, thanks for having me. I just realised I called you Patrick. What would you prefer, Paddy or Patrick? Um, do you know what? Go with Paddy, and then if I'm in trouble, just call me Patrick. That That's that's the way it tends to go. Start with Paddy, move to Patrick if it gets serious. Yeah, it's the same with me, Ollie and Oliver. <laughs> absolutely. Oh, really? Yeah, Brilliant. yeah, absolutely. So... Yeah, you have, I kind of bullied you into this episode, but you've done so much research in such a short period of time. I am honoured again to have you on here to quiz your um, your teacher's mind, and not just your teacher's mind, your mind of, of, of living in um, <laughs> Belfast when you were a child and teenager into adulthood. So I'm really excited about this episode. Um yeah, I'm going to I'm going to throw it over to you straight away. Okay. Okay, let's do it. Right. What started the troubles? So, so the troubles was a period of civil strife mostly in Northern Ireland from 1969 to the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. Yet, even in the news today, we had warnings of violence over the consequences of Brexit and borders, but the troubles was the result of centuries of conflict. So, we are starting in the 1500s. I love the 1500s. So I want to pitch you where well, you're going to love the start of this podcast. So I want to pitch you three events, which will hopefully explain what started the Troubles. So the first is the Ulster Plantation. The second is the creation of Northern Ireland. And the third is the events of the late 1960s. Ollie, are you ready? Born ready. Are you sure? Um, no. <laughs> no. Yes. <laughs> it will be fine. That's It'll... very honest of you. Yeah. That's very honest. Okay. We'll we'll do it. So firstly, I want to turn the tables on you. Oh, God. Okay. Right. I've got three questions for you. Number mm. one, what do you know about Northern Ireland? Now, the reason I ask this is you're an English fella. You're in your 30s. You grew up in the 90s. So for our listeners out there, let's give them an idea of what you already know about this topic and this place. So what do you know about Northern Ireland? So Northern Ireland, I know, is a relatively uh, new um, part of the UK. Um, I think it's, a, is it, was it 1921 that it was It was, created, yeah. Which makes it 100 yeah, years. Government of Ireland Act 1920. Yeah, yeah. yeah this so year. It's its, it's, so its, its 100th birthday this year, yeah. Okay, yeah. So... 
uh, I I remember it being quite a troubled place or that's how it was portrayed on the media when we were growing up I remember there being a lot of um, violence and um, we I didn't quite understand why um, we were always told that uh, we were basically just told not to go there <laughs> um, <laughs> that was that was kind of the message um, I know that obviously Belfast sits in uh Northern Ireland and as does uh Derry or London Derry depending on um yeah the side that you're on I guess um mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we'll get into that don't you worry yeah so that's 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 kind of all I know really okay okay great thank you question number two what do you know about the troubles so obviously the 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 troubles that we I witnessed on telly uh, or on the news uh, during the nineties, and I knew it had something to do with uh, religion as well as um, uh, sort of unionists, so people who were pro, like pro British and um, Republicans who were pro uh, like the Republic of Ireland. Um, mm-hmm. Nice. I yeah, that's sort of the depth of my knowledge on it. Thank you very much. And number three, what do you know about Ireland? Uh, as in Southern Ireland, um, I know that the capital is um, Dublin. I actually did a very nice uh, Christmas tour around there when I was uh, a teenager. We. Uh, we went over to Dublin and then we went all the way down to Cork, uh, like Kerry, Bantry Bay, um, and right the way back up again. Beautiful, beautiful country. But how, how it's kind of, or how it was portrayed is that Ireland is Catholic and a republic and Northern Ireland is Protestant and... Uh, like pro union that's kind of how it was spun to us lovely okay okay so that's great so i think that 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 sums up then so would you say that the views that you have or the knowledge that you have in northern ireland the troubles the rest of ireland would you think they'd be typical of your average person in the street in britain i think so I think so. I mean, I've been to uh, Northern Ireland since all of this has happened. And obviously, I'm very open minded. But I think to your sort of average Joe that is my age, I think a lot of people wouldn't even consider going to Northern Ireland purely because of what we saw growing up. Mm. Which Mm. is a shame. because fascinating, isn't it? I mean, I... I mean, I might go into this a bit later, but I absolutely loved it. I was so surprised mm. when I got there. Um, and then it made me start to question, like, has it has it changed or has it always been like this? Or, or was it just spun to us in a very um, pro-union uh, way? And were we not getting the full picture? And, yeah, I... I don't know, but everyone was so lovely when I went there. So nice, and I really mm. enjoyed myself. So, yes. Well, everyone that's lovely should, to hear. Yeah. Well done. 
on behalf of uh, of, of people from Belfast, yeah, mm. you're, you're you're welcome back when the lockdown is finished, and not a second before, Oliver. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right. So, so let me see. I'll I'll, I'll cover. Uh, quite a lot of what you've gone through today right up until the troubles began right up until the end of the summer of 1969 so you mentioned earlier on there it's sort of catholics on one side and protestants on the other so i'm going to just do a couple of the basics so catholics are christians who have the pope as the head of their church now they believe two things the first is that the pope is god's representative on earth or at least the spiritual leader of all Catholics. That's the first one. Then number two, when the priest holds up bread and wine during mass, which is like the Catholic religious service, it becomes Jesus Christ. It's like his body and blood. Now, Protestants are any Christian who is not a Catholic, except Eastern Orthodox, but I'm not going to go there. So Protestants can believe anything related to Christian doctrine, followers of Christ in any way. And the name Protestant comes from the Renaissance Christians who protested against the Catholic Church. Think Martin Luther and his list of uh, complaints that he nailed to the cathedral door. So Protestant really is a massive umbrella. You can have people uh, in there who believe that line dancing will send you to hell or people in there who just might go to church on a Sunday and, you know, follow the teachings of Jesus. So you can really have anyone under that Protestant umbrella. Mm. Now, like I said, we're going back to the 50s hundreds today and what history podcast is complete without a reference to henry the eighth now i'm going to briefly talk about him henry's fault <laughs> the end well yeah exactly yeah so henry the eighth so he broke the catholic church for political and economic reasons we're not going to get into it most people in england stayed catholic in fact he died a catholic now Skip forward a few decades. In 1570, his daughter Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, was excommunicated. Now, this changed everything. Because now, any Catholic in her realm was not obliged to follow her, as she was considered a bastard and a heretic. So, any Catholic in her realm was suddenly traitor somebody under the influence of a foreign power. So almost overnight, Ireland becomes a problem. Not because at this time England controlled Ireland. They, they were been, been trying to for decades, for centuries, and they were never able to do it. But the problem is they claimed that they owned Ireland. So the Irish were always happy to have a little doléance with any enemy of the British. So when Elizabeth excommunicated, religion became political. And now Irish existence was now always influenced by Britain and by wider European affairs. So I think that's the one thing we need to understand about Catholic and Protestant from the outset. And then as we go on, we realise that actually there, it's a sort of a mash of, of social groups within what is now known as Northern Ireland. But let me give you some some background on Ireland. So there's four provinces, and cut across me any time with any questions, because I'm I will nodding. probably start to speak quicker and quicker and quicker. I'm nodding here furiously, <laughs> but you can't see You're me. Along. I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. But you, you can't see me, but just believe me that I am nodding, and I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, get it. Okay. Okay, so I'll take your word for it. Right, we've got four provinces. We've got Ulster, 
in the north, Leinster in the east, Connacht in the west, and Munster in the south. Uh, now, we might have uh, some pedants who would say that Meath was also a province, but we're not going to go there. Now, in Saxon times, Ireland got involved in English affairs all the time. The island of Lindisfarne, where the Vikings first attacked, that was yeah. an Irish creation by a king of Northumbria, I've been uh, Oswald, who was nice. fluent in Gaelic. Have you? I'd love to go. Yeah, I, I, I read a book on Oswald of Northumbria recently, and he, he was great. He was one of those... Uh, I, would you, you wouldn't even call him Anglo-Saxon. He was a Gaelic, Irish, Scott, English hodgepodge. Anyway, this had long changed by the time we're in the 1500s. Mm. So since the 12th century, England had attempted generally unsuccessfully to take over Ireland. They would, they would have periodic interest. But what happened was their settlers who we would now at this stage call the Old English or the Anglo-Irish, would generally just settle into Irish culture. And there's various sources complaining, you know, when representatives of the English king came to Ireland, that, uh, you know, let's say the Fitzgeralds, for example, were speaking Irish, dressing like Gaelic chieftains. And really, until 1570, although the likes of Henry VIII and then, you know, uh, his son Edward and his daughter Mary tried to get hold of Ireland, it just wasn't working now we're focusing on ulster which is the northern province and until 1600 so we're saying roughly the end of the elizabethan era the start of the stuart era ulster was the most gaelic which means irish it was least populated it was the least urbanized province and really the whole island at this stage was a land of sporadically thick forests bogs lakes hills it was almost impossible to lead a military campaign here. Uh, I mean, England had tried repeatedly. Um, and finally, with the Nine Years' War, England finally defeated Hugh O'Neill, who was the last great Gaelic lord in Ulster. He ran, I guess what we could call a, a guerrilla warfare campaign against English soldiers across Ulster, but made the fatal mistake of leaving. He took his army right to the bottom of Ireland to conceal near Cork, where you went uh, one beautiful Christmas. Uh, they got defeated by the English, as you would expect. You know, the English wanted to lure the Irish into battle. And he fled in 1607 with the O'Donnell. So that was really the last of the great Irish chieftains had, uh, had left Ireland. So in 1607, we call this the Flight of the Earls. And uh, Hugh O'Neill is buried in Rome, buried in this beautiful church, uh, on one of the seven hills overlooking the city. And actually the O'Donnell, the O'Donnell tribe, they went to settle outside Madrid. And if you get on the Madrid underground, the Madrid metro, uh, I know this because I went out to the Bernabeu where, where Real Madrid play. The stop before is actually called O'Donnell. So the land that they were given in Spain, a fellow Catholic country to, to Ireland, is now part of Madrid and Real Madrid. And I know you have zero interest in football, but perhaps some of ours do. Real Madrid used to be called the O'Donnells, one of their many nicknames, before they became fascist. Now, jumping back to Ireland. In 1600, and again, in and around this area, there weren't really maps. So the terrain of Ireland was studied, it was discussed, but it was referenced through stories and legends. The farmland of Ireland was unenclosed. There was no system of primogenitor. So the eldest son of a, of a member of the aristocracy was not going to naturally inherit uh, the, the land or the wealth. It was done on a more democratic basis. So there was no right to own land in Ireland. 
No, it was more democratic, but that led to more, uh, I suppose, fallouts, uh, bickering, etc. Now, in the year 1600, English and Scottish settlers made up about 2% of the population of Ireland. By the year 1700, it was 27%, and that was mostly in Ulster. That's a big jump, isn't it? It's big, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So Can I just say, I really love the word Ulster, by the way. I love it. I don't know hmm. why, I just do. <laughs> it's got a good sign to it, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it rolls off the tongue nicely. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Sorry, there, there, there's one bit when I was doing research this week, um, which I, I had to tell my wife and, and she loved. It's that the English could never really understand the Irish mostly we spoke in a different language, Gaelic or Irish, but it was that Irish exaggeration, when Irish people have been translated, the way that the Irish would exaggerate greatly frustrated English chroniclers. There was always a confusion that Irish people would say murdered instead of injured. So my wife would always uh, make fun of me for totally exaggerating something, and it turns out that uh, that goes back centuries. Um, now, before we look into the Ulster plantation, I suppose the last thing to say about Ireland was that Ireland had really quite strong links with, with the continent. So Irish priests would train in Salamanca. Um, Latin was, was widespread. And although Ireland was Catholic, it wasn't really uh, any sort of structure that, that the Pope would have overseen. It was more a, a spiritual religion that, that uh, the people would have. Now, the Ulster plantation... I suppose throughout the Tudor era, England had tried to plant, I suppose, where you plant your own people in in another country. They had tried to plant Munster, they had tried to plant different parts of Ireland, and it had never really worked. And by the time we get to the end of the Elizabethan period, once Ulster had been conquered, there was this idea, right, Ireland's a threat, as I said before, once Elizabeth was excommunicated, Religion became political, and Ireland was now a threat to England. So the Ulster plantation was taken extremely seriously, and weirdly, it was almost privatised. So if you look at maps of the Ulster plantation, um, and that's the six counties of Northern Ireland, you've got Antrim, Down, Armagh, Tyrone, Derry, Fermanagh. And then also in, in Ulster, you've got Donegal up in the northwest, and then you've got uh, Monaghan and Cavan as well, just to the south of the six counties of Northern Ireland. Now, if you look at a map of the Ulster plantation, you can see that land was given to almost various different companies. So if we think of Derry, as, as we were discussing before we came on air, it's known and has been known in the past and is known, <clears throat> excuse me, by people today and generally people from the protestant background as londonderry because the london guilds those uh i suppose what we could call unions of craftsmen were given the opportunity to invest so the london guilds invested in derry hence it being called londonderry that's really and interesting a group who because we make... i just assumed mm. that it was was called londonderry as like sort of a stamp of the british being like no this is what we're calling it end of story <laughs> done but yeah, actually it's and, a company and, that's gone in there exactly yeah and and i think what what the elizabethans started to realize was as in the 1590s as the english economy was becoming a lot more diversified 
as they were, as they had, I suppose, broken links with the continent, they were at war with Spain, they were looking for new markets. So their economy had become diversified. So they were always looking for new places to essentially to earn money. Mm. And the plantation of Ulster was seen as a nice way for uh, for people to earn to earn a bit of cash, I suppose, extremely dangerous, extremely uh, risky. But nonetheless, it was there. And there's a group that we may touch on later on called the Apprentice Boys. And the Apprentice Boys really were named after apprentices who, who would go and live in Derry or London Derry. And uh, they they would settle there. So this uh, land in Ulster w- was advertised to people who were called undertakers. It was allocated to them in sets of either 1,000, 2,000 or 3,000 acres. Now, no native Irish or any Catholics were allowed to own any land. It had to go to Protestants who were loyal to the English crown. There's this patronising phrase called deserving natives. And deserving natives may be allowed land, but they would be carefully treated and they would not be allowed to live near any other uh, Irish natives. So this was huge scale, uh, a huge scale plantation. Now, Antrim and Down, which are the two eastern counties, uh, I suppose if, if you look at Ireland, you've got Loch Ney, which is the loch or you know, large lake in the centre mm, of massive, Northern Ireland. It? Antrim and, it is big, yeah. Antrim and Down are to the east of that. Now, they had huge connections with Scotland anyway. And the accents in Antrim and Down, you can, you can see or you can hear this sort of Scottish dialect in there a little bit. So they didn't really need to be planted that much because there was strong connections there anyway. Indeed, the Kingdom of Dalriada was a weird sort of Scotch-Irish Gaelic-speaking kingdom from from centuries before. Uh, Now, there is a saying in Irish history that England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. And as soon as England went into civil war... And indeed, any time Britain or England has any sort of difficulties, the Irish try to take advantage. And this was no different when the English Civil War started. So in 1641, there was a brutal Catholic rebellion in in Ulster, where essentially people who had been forced off their land tried to take it back. And this was, we think there was probably about 2,000 people murdered. Uh, in in this uprising, but of course this was then advert. This was promoted in English newspapers, English pamphlets, by the Puritans under Oliver Cromwell as you know fifty thousand, one hundred thousand, and really portraying the Irish as, as other as as an extremely dangerous Catholic enemy. So, sixteen forty one rebellion. I mean, spoiler alert: every single Irish rebellion failed. So after this, even more land was confiscated. Grants from the English Parliament funded this, and in 1649, uh, Cromwell came over, and he, as you know, as, as as many English people seem to know, he he, I mean, he had an extremely violent uh, military campaign in Ireland, which is still remembered uh, remembered today with real, um, I suppose, real emotion. Mm. Now new, there's a story that when army, he landed. That's fun, yeah, yeah, and of course, I mean Cromwell was this religious fanatic. You know, I mean he he he's popular in in England for the role that he took in in developing the role of Parliament and and breaking the almost stranglehold that 
that the English crown had over the country. But I mean, in in Ireland, he is seen as a religious fanatic who, the way he saw it, well, if Catholics are going to hell, send them there quickly. So when he arrived, there now this, there's a, a great story here, which which results in the brilliant name of a pub in Dublin. So when he arrived, one of the first battles that he fought was in a place just outside Dublin called Rathmines, which is now on on, on the Lewis tram line. You know, it's a 25 minute walk from from the centre of town in Dublin. And during the battle, a horse got wounded, as they do. It was bleeding, and in a frenzy, it sprinted back towards Dublin City. And for some reason, the horse sprinted into a tavern and trashed the place. You know, kicking, blood going everywhere, and died in this in this tavern. And the, <laughs> the pub, the tavern remained a tavern, and has always been a pub. So today it's called the Bleeding Horse Pub, and uh, I think it's just off Harcourt Street. That's so the, the best bleeding horse ever. Yeah. Isn't that brilliant? It's yeah. like bull in a china so, shop, but a horse in a pub. Isn't that brilliant? Absolutely yeah. great. Um, we're not going to dwell on Cromwell, though. This this is about the trouble starting. So the Ulster mentality now, especially after 1641, was a frontier mentality, almost like a siege mentality. They were not dissimilar to the founding fathers of America. They were uh, cautious. They were conservative. They, and generally most of the people who come over as settlers were, were were not wealthy and they would be the same people who made the trip across the Atlantic Ocean to to settle in America. You know, they were people who were looking for a new life. So Ulster began to become pretty different to to the rest of Ireland. Geographically it's quite different. You know, there's what we what we would call mountains but are hills. Uh which you can see if you're driving up towards uh towards Newry uh, today, com- coming from the south, you can see those so hills I've, and the sort of I've gap been to the, the Giant's Causeway. That's in Ulster, isn't it? Mm, that's on the Antrim coast. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Absolutely, there was a Victorian travel book which said that the Giant's Causeway was worth seeing, but not worth going to see. Which I think is a lovely, uh, lovely quote there. But so yeah, that's that's right up in the north. Now, as I said, Ulster became different to the rest of Ireland, especially the east of Ulster. And there was a series of laws called penal laws, and they essentially were sporadically enforced, but again contributed to this separation of cultures between Protestant and Catholic. So Catholics couldn't vote, Catholics couldn't sit in Parliament, Catholics couldn't teach, Catholics couldn't enter certain professions. So this created almost this uh, this idea and this reality largely that the experience in Ulster was that Catholics were of a lower class generally than, than right. Protestants because there was that almost that glass ceiling that, that they had. And you would find uh, in a lot of Catholic areas of Ulster and indeed the rest of Ireland, you would have hedge schools where uh, priests would would teach children, not just religion, of course, you know, to, uh, arithmetic and various different other subjects in, in hedges. You know, they would secretly have these have these little clandestine schools. And uh, so that's where we are. So, so we're in this. This is the end of part one now, Ollie. So we're 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 at the end of the sixteen hundreds almost. Um, in after the what I mean, what's what's called in Britain the glorious and bloodless revolution of sixteen eighty nine, when William of Orange yes, came over yeah. and with his wife Mary, who was also his cousin, they took the throne in England. And when James II fled, he 
gathered an army, came to Ireland. Ireland, of course, you know, reluctantly backed this English monarch, but he was a Catholic. And at the Battle of the Boyne, that's when uh, William of Orange uh, beat uh, the, the Jacobite army. And uh, that is celebrated today by the Orange men, who, who wear their orange sashes. And again, we'll come back to them later. But really, so by the end of the 1600s, if you were a betting person, you would bet that in Ulster, really, the the Catholic Irish would would almost dwindle away, because this was just you know they at this stage had faced over a century of uh, I guess discrimination might be the right word, and there was a real separation within the society. But we're going to leave that there, and uh, we're going to jump forward a couple of centuries. Now, at this stage, do you want to do you want to ask any questions? As I've been ranting away about bleeding horses and rebellion and whatnot it just for for me it it just seems like it's so ingrained in the culture and the um the sort of build up to the troubles that i would see on the telly like it's been building up for a long time um and sort of i i now I can now see why sort of Ulster as a as a part of the the country was kind of they kind of that's why they drew the line of of the UK because I never kind of understood how they Yeah, I mean I I suppose within the province of Ulster I think when when I was talking earlier about the links with Scotland they were generally trading links and you know they that those Antrim and Down and you know when I reference the old kingdom of Dalriada that was never any sort of centralized British policy of expansion I think it was just naturally uh I guess two two cultures which which were which were quite similar mm. but but I think you're right then that because other plantations had failed in Ireland the Munster plantation for example England had learned from their mistakes and once the excommunication of Elizabeth happened, then it was really a case of England would, would pump money into Ireland. It, even if they weren't getting any return on it, they would make sure that they at least had a foothold. And that's what Ulster became. So do you think, I mean, obviously you weren't there, you don't know um, as much as I do, but as a history teacher, I'm going to quiz you. Um, mm. Do you think that the... Uh, the British were doing it because they they wanted sort of the resources that Ulster had, or do you think they were doing it to kind of suppress a potential rebellion against the English? Yeah, I I think it was the latter. I mean, they there there wouldn't be many resources that 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 would interest them. <laughs> So, so much, they were just uh, trying to keep people in their place is basically what they were trying to do. Yeah, that that's right. It it, it was strategic. Yeah, it, it it was a colony and it was an extremely dangerous colony because the the Irish would never really would ever give in mm. to 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 being controlled. I have another question. And, mm. So Again, I'm sort of second guessing now, but obviously, so uh, English people, I mean, because this is pre-Britain or pre-UK, um, so English people would have moved over to Ireland 
uh, and been given sort of the lands of the native Irish people. Is that where the descent comes from the very patriotic British people that now live in Ulster? Were they originally British or English and they've sort of stemmed Mm. from that rather than being natives that have been sort of converted? Yeah, so so most of them would would be more of a Scottish heritage than an English heritage. Okay. And as you'll find out in part three, the when there was a prime minister of Northern Ireland called Captain Terence O'Neill, he was seen as too English, so people didn't trust him. So these settlers, and generally, you know, the community would be called Protestants, didn't trust the English because they knew, and generally rightly so, they knew that they were a pawn in in English politics or in English international relations or foreign affairs. So what you have, this Protestant community then, would generally have been Scottish or or English. But people who, I suppose, yeah, they would, of course, 100% be loyal to the crown. But as we know, in Britain or in England, being loyal to the crown doesn't necessarily mean being loyal to the government. Because after no. the constitutional monarchy was created in the, six, in the late 1600s, yeah, so it's... So loyal to the crown is always would be almost a cornerstone of the Protestant community, but not necessarily loyal to not necessarily loyal to the government, as mm. I said before. And actually, just as you just just to throw an interesting fact at you before the next question, the <laughs> uh, I didn't include this in my notes for some reason, but listen, I'm saying it now. Um, <laughs> there would have been guerrilla style attacks uh on on these settlers on on their farms and you know they of course were encouraged to cut down trees because people can hide in trees and the people who would attack so the the native irish were called tories and they would generally attack from hills or forests so bizarrely the 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 irish catholics were given the nickname tories because they would attack when you would at least expect it then that nickname was given to the conservative a unions party. So when we call Boris Johnson a Tory, the etymology of the word actually comes back to the time of the Ulster Plantation in the 1600s That's when really settlers would be attacked by Irish. You assume it's it? short for conservative, don't you? But actually yeah. it's not. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I did I did know that, but um, that's really interesting for um, people because you just assume it's a shortening of the word. Um Mm. Yeah, so mm. I'm, again, I'm jumping forward again because it's kind of my only um, sort of reference point. So I found when I went over there, um, even, I mean, it was a couple of years ago, it wasn't even that long ago, um, that um, people were either, like, they were either f- still quite fiercely British more than English people would be fiercely British. That's what I found. There were lots of flags. You never see that here, mm. ever. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, there were lots of flags. There were lots of um, pictures of the the Queen, if you were on that sort of side. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very sort of... I don't know if you've ever been to America, but they always have the American flag, like, everywhere everywhere mm-hmm. um and it mm-hmm. felt very much like that when i was in certain parts of of belfast um 
which is like I mean I go to London and you hardly ever see like a union flag it was um yeah it was like very pro one side or the other um it's just something mm-hmm. that I noticed I just I've never seen so many union jacks in my life yeah it um it, and again what what's in so if you're in in Northern Ireland when it's in and around the anniversary of the Battle of, of the Boyne, which William of Orange fought on, then you'll see way more flags because in, in and around the 12th of July, that becomes, you know, the sort of commemoration of of, uh, of that battle, which, you know, used to be a, a, an incredibly violent time. But let's move forward. Let's, if, if we get now to the 1800s, so we're jumping forward, we're jumping forward 200 years. Okay. And... Yeah. We're going to look at the creation of Northern Ireland now. In the late 1800s, the idea of home rule was created. So the idea that Ireland as a whole would stay within the British Empire, but would have their own parliament uh, sitting in Dublin. Okay. And uh, this became incredibly controversial, of course, in Ireland, because you, the Protestant community in Ulster did not want a uh, a government in Dublin. They said home rule is Rome rule. The idea that they would just be controlled by the Pope, that this would be a Catholic country within the British Empire. So for them, this was just anathema. Now, there were three home rule bills. There was 1886, 1883 and 1912. Now, for the first two, uh, the House of Commons... And then the House of Lords were able to veto and, and, and just, just reject it. But then that veto was taken away in the early 1900s. So in 1912, a Home Rule Bill was passed and it looked like a parliament in Dublin would be created. Now, the veto of the House of Lords could now last for two years. So it appeared that in 1914, Home Rule would be created in Ireland, a parliament in Dublin would rule the country and uh, any representatives of, uh, you know, parts of Antrim, Down, Fermanagh, whatever, they would no longer go to Westminster. They would sit in, in a Dublin parliament. Okay. Now, in July 1914, any gambler would have said that the next war that was going to happen was a civil war in Ireland. Both sides started to arm the uh, Ulster Volunteer Force. They imported weapons from I've Germany. I've just something. Is this the mm, Easter Rising? Are we going up to that in 1916? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yes. we're about to come up to that. Yeah. Yes. Mm, excellent. Excellent. A tick for your contribution. Wonderful. And um, So what we have then is, weirdly, you've got the, the Conservative Party uh, supporting the Unionist side who totally opposed Home Rule. And then the Liberals uh, supporting the uh, Irish Nationalists. So really the idea that Ireland would become a totally independent republic wasn't really peddled at this stage. It, it wasn't something that was ever talked about. It was seen as totally unrealistic. So in July 1914, it looks like Ireland will possibly enter a civil war. And then quickly, World War One begins. Mm. And I mean, that seems ridiculous, but I suppose anyone listening to this podcast knows their history probably knows that when World War One started, it, 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 it pretty much came out of nowhere. So what happened was the Home Rule, the pause button was hit. And it was a case of, right, 
each side joined the Allied forces and the, the general consensus was uh, Ulster volunteers who don't want home rule, uh, you join up and, 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 and prove your, your loyalty to the Crown. And then, of course, uh, Irish nationalists, their leaders tended to say, well, join up and show your commitment to fight for small nations like, like Belgium. Now, you're absolutely right that in 1916, there was the Easter Rising, which was a which was a an Irish Republican uprising in Dublin, which which really in 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 the Easter week seemed like it was it was a failure, you know, the, due to miscommunication and to you know ver, uh, arms not arriving. The people in Dublin actually turned on the rebels because the whole centre of the city was was destroyed, and we're not going to get into the Easter Rising now, of course, and um, but this was another failed rebellion in Irish history. But the way that Britain dealt with it, which was to execute all the leaders, most of the leaders anyway, and behind closed doors, quick military uh, trials, and, and they were shot in, in jail in Dublin. This triggered an unbelievable uh, emotional and, and patriotic response from the Irish, who suddenly thought, right, where, while we had politely asked for home rule, all bets are off. We want a full independent. And in the elections, general elections after World War One in nineteen eighteen, Sinn Fein got a huge majority, absolutely massive majority. What does Sinn Fein stand for? It stands for ourselves alone. I just really like the no, words. I, <laughs> I, do you? Yeah. You're a big fan of of the way Irish words sound. Yeah. 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 So Sinn Féin, so they essentially, they, they they wanted full independence. So a war of independence began. And this was, you know, guerrilla style attacks. Uh, Britain sent over soldiers called Black and Tans who were World War I uh, veterans. And I mean, they conducted themselves in a really horrendous way. And uh, they essentially, Britain came to the negotiating table. And the pitch that was given to to the Irish side, uh, led by Michael Collins. He was the, the chief negotiator. He was the man who led the, the IRA and, and you know, guerrilla-style yeah. uh, attacks against the British Army in Ireland. Um, the pitch was, listen, if you continue this war, we're sending the full might of the empire over. We will end this once and for all. Or you can have the 26 counties which uh, stretch from Donegal up in the northwest uh, right the way down to to Cork in the south. You have those and you essentially get home rule for those 26 counties and the six counties will now create not Ulster but Northern Ireland. And Michael Collins agreed to this. He almost fell for the bluff which which Winston Churchill did. Uh, But, you know, Britain weren't going to continue to commit to a war which, which they were losing but they were skilled negotiators. So then a civil war broke out in the south of Ireland, which was not the Republic, but was known as the Free State. So in the Free State, then you had pro-treaty and you had anti-treaty. And Northern Ireland was created. So finally, <laughs> we're at the stage now, the Government of Ireland Act 1920. And instead of a a parliament in Dublin, you now had a parliament in Belfast, which was called the Stormont Government. And I want to talk about that for a little bit now, because 
it was really a it was a one-party state. So it was led by the Ulster Unionist Party. So the first Prime Minister was called Sir James Craig. And once Northern Ireland was, this idea was pitched. And it was said that by 1925, there'd be a border commission and, you know, areas of Northern Ireland that don't want to be part of Northern Ireland can join the free state and areas of the free state that want to join Northern Ireland can do so. So there would be a fluidity. But as soon as Northern Ireland was created, Craig said, not an inch what we have, we hold. So, um, let me see. Uh, I was gonna, as, like, was this accepted? Like, obviously, like overnight, pretty not overnight, but obviously, one day they've decided. Right now, this is part of the UK. This is part of Britain. Um, it it couldn't have been accepted by everyone. I mean, obviously, it it wasn't because we come into the troubles and all that. But mm. can you? Mm. I I just can't get my head around. Maybe you're in, you're in a certain place, or you just happen to be in the wrong place, and they've drawn a line down the, the, the map basically, and you're on the wrong side of it, or not the side that you want to be on. Um. Mm. Yeah, it's mad. Yeah, I mean, it? well, there were there were counties. So the six counties of Northern Ireland, where that's where there was the protestant majority in those six counties and in the rest there wasn't so that was the idea now county boundaries counties in ireland are i'd say they'd be more similar in in like pride to like state in america mm. so generally you would have a people would tend to have a huge pride in their county they would play you know their county would generally play gaelic football and hurling and you know there would you would have your county colours. Yeah. And that would generally be a real source of civic pride. So to draw a border along county lines, I guess would kind of make sense. It, it was a hodgepodge, but realistically, the British never really would have shown any interest in Ireland. And I think after the horrendous nature of World War One, the fact that in Britain, their veterans were promised a land fit for heroes, and that absolutely wasn't the case. To, and then you've got civil war a, in Russia and communism. Yeah, to me as an outsider, it looks like... You, obviously, I've got to tread very carefully of what I'm saying, but it, it looks like, to me, that it's almost like they're like, you can have... You can have this part of the country, but we're not letting go fully because we're in charge here and we will set the rules mm. and that's the end of the story. So it's like the big big brother bully mentality. That's what it seems like to me, anyway, from the outside. I'm doing a lot well, of nodding well, yeah, I mean, and shaking in... my head. <laughs> oh, no. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because in the border treaty, it's agreed that the Royal Navy would be stationed in all ports around Ireland. If we wanted to go, they could go. And um, interestingly, as fate would have it, in 1938, Chamberlain actually signed this away. So weirdly, a year before World War II began, then uh, the Royal Navy was not allowed in the, po <coughs> the ports of the Free State, which drastically changed the Battle of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So this, this had a huge huge bearing and how World War II was was going to go. And of course, Eamon de Valera, who was the leader of the Free of, of Ireland at the time, or ERA, whatever you want to call it, abs absolutely refused to let the Royal Navy anywhere near Irish ports. 
uh, you know, said, well, listen, we remember the first time you had winked as Churchill, so we're not falling for that one again. Mm. But I suppose you're right. So in, in a sense, this was the British saying, right, we're, we're in charge here. But actually, as Northern Ireland developed, it, it, it almost switched. And the Northern Ireland Parliament, the, the Stormont Parliament, would tell Britain what they wanted and would often, uh, would often threaten London uh, with, uh, I suppose, mass resignations, things like that. And the general consensus within the House of Commons was let them get on with it. We don't discuss Northern Irish issues in, in, the, House, in the House of Commons. That, that was the tradition that developed. We, well, we let in... them get on with it. We give them their money. Yeah, again, that's interesting because Sorry, recently you had the uh, the DUP in power with uh, the Conservatives and the DUP mm. were calling a lot of the shots, weren't they, over mm. London, mm. Um, which is quite interesting how it sort of, it seemed to have flipped reverse there. Um, mm, interesting. Mm. Yeah, and... When when we look then, and uh, we, we won't really cover the DUP today, but we will cover their, their founder and leader, Ian Paisley, when, mm-hmm. when we start to look at the 1960s. But if I can sum up the approach of the Northern Ireland government in one anecdote. In 1921, an English civil service expert with experience in reorganising large departments called H.P. Boland was recommended by the British Treasury to the Northern Ireland government. He was essentially this guy who would come over, work there for five, ten years, and get the affairs in order of this entirely new country. And because he was a Catholic, the Northern Irish response was, thank you very much, but no, I think you know the reason why. Now, when uh, David Trimble, who was a co, it was a unionist leader, in the 80s and 90s, he was a co-recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. He called Northern Ireland a cold house for Catholics. So he called from 1920, 1921 onwards, a cold house. And if I could then just talk through the way that, that the country was, was organised. Now, so, sorry, <laughs> what does that mean? Like a cold house? Like what is that? Um, Forgive me. Somewhere where they lived. Okay. Yeah, I suppose the, the imagery there is somewhere where Catholics lived, but there was no warmth shown towards them. And I think as I explain a little how, how the history went over the next few decades, I think that phrase will will hopefully explain itself a little okay. bit more. Yeah. Now, in 1920, once the, the idea of Northern Ireland was pitched, uh, I'm sure most, most British people know that the Titanic was made in Belfast. So one of the, the, the big Northern Ireland industries was, was shipbuilding mm-hmm. and there was you know rope making and, and linen. And the shipyards employed thousands of men. Now, in 1920, shipyard workers were summoned on the 21st of July to a meeting to expel all non-loyal workers from the shipyards. So many Catholics fled once they heard this meeting was happening. Others uh, were who weren't lucky enough to flee were stripped of all their clothing. Others had to swim across uh, Belfast Lock under a hail of shipyard graffiti, you know, nuts and bolts. What? And then other That's big mad. employers. Yeah, yeah. So so this this sort of followed suit in, you know, Gallagher's Tobacco, Sirocco. Uh, they were big, big employers in Northern Ireland where the line was, you need to only employ Protestants. So 
even before the Government of Ireland Act had passed, Craig, who would become the first Prime Minister, was already creating an official police force called the Specials. Now, not the band. In 1921. <laughs> no, I mean, could he have been a singer? Possibly, but he, he certainly wasn't one for creating bands at this stage that we know of, that we know of, Ollie. Mm, yes. But um, so what we see now in 1921, so you had most nationalist controlled authorities. And by nationalist, I mean um, people who would like support the idea of an Irish nation, generally not be violent necessarily. Uh, so nationalists in Ireland would generally not be what someone might think, you know, an English nationalist would uh, what would be. So they would tend to be a bit more middle of the road. So nationalists controlled local authorities in Northern Ireland, Catholic authorities, they chose a policy of non-recognition of Northern Ireland. So county uh, councils in Tyrone and Fermanagh in the west of Northern Ireland, they declared allegiance to the Doyle, Doyle Aaron in Dublin, while Derry City officially renounced the Belfast Parliament. Now, both of these local authorities were suspended. The police took over their headquarters and then 19 other nationalist controlled authorities were also suspended. Now, the nationalist party in Northern Ireland and Sinn Féin disagreed on what to do. This was totally unprecedented. So there were divisions in the community and then the Belfast government acted quickly. They abolished proportional representation. They introduced first past the post, held all councillors to take an oath of allegiance to the crown. And then the third one, the most important one, they introduced gerrymandering. So they totally redrew uh, electoral borders. So in Lurgan, for instance, uh, a town, 551 unionist votes got 15 seats, but 5,499 nationalist votes got no seats. That's why Derry, I hate first past the post. Like, yeah, to me, it's, proportionate it, representation is a, is a fairer way of of doing it. Um, yeah, abs- absolutely. And get rid absolutely. of the House of Lords and... as well. <laughs> throw that one in there. Banish them. Uh, yeah. Now, <laughs> in Derry, for example, seven and a half thousand unionist voters returned 12 councillors. 10,000 nationalist voters returned only eight. So the, the, you know, the, the voting lines were very much then... Uh, redrawn to make sure that this one-party state would remain a one-party state. Oh, it's so now, corrupt, Michael Collins. It, like... Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Now, Michael Collins, who I've mentioned before, he led the free state government and would soon be assassinated during the Civil War in the South. He petitioned the Belfast government to stop the Catholic boycott, and the Belfast government agreed. So Collins you know, in those months of the existence of Northern Ireland when he was alive, really fought tooth and nail to support the Catholic community in, in Northern Ireland. Now, the Northern Ireland government agreed, but only 20 Catholic workers out of 7,000 returned to the shipyards. So um, so that's our that's the voting system that, that, that we're looking for here. And Catholic representatives uh, at the time tended to hope not for a new shared system, but almost just for the collapse of Northern Ireland. They would often boycott the new institutions. Um, political leaders and you know Catholic bishops made no secret of the hope that Northern Ireland would not last. 
Now, if we look at the, the cabinet that, that ran Northern Ireland, so all cabinet members were drawn from the upper layers of Protestant Ulster society. Craig was, was the prime minister, was the son of a millionaire. Uh, Lord Londonderry and Edward Arch, Archdale owned large estates of land. And going right the way through, you have uh, these men who were real passionate Protestants, passionate unionists. There was a man, Richard Dawson Bates, who heard rumours that uh, a Catholic telephonist had been employed in his department and he refused to use any phones to take any phone calls or to make phone calls until that person had had been moved to another department. So we have a real staunch sectarianism. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. Um, But really, what you had then was that the cabinets were... You know, there, there's a quote here. Uh, they were dogged, reliable and conservative rather than imaginative and innovative. So in the context of this, in 1923, uh, two years after Northern Ireland was officially created, the Dublin government introduced customs barriers on the border and this hugely influenced partition. It was almost the worst thing that the Dublin government could have done mm. because this uh, almost reinforced the idea that, that Northern Ireland was here to stay and, and was different, was was other. Uh, now, in the years 1920 to 1922, there was, a, I, I suppose, what you could call the Troubles. There was uh, uh, 460 people lost their lives within over this three-year period. Um, 70% of those were, were Catholics. Um Catholic relief organisations estimated that in Belfast between 8,700 and 11,000 Catholics had been driven out of their jobs, 23,000 Catholics had been forced out of their homes, and about 500 Catholic-owned businesses had, had been destroyed. Now, Craig claimed in 1934, he said he was an orange man first, a politician and an MP afterwards. And he said, all I boast is that we are a Protestant parliament and a Protestant state. Now, I promised you we'd come back to Orange Men, didn't I? Now, the Orange Order was almost this organisation that could bring Protestants, the unionist community, together. So there was various different religions of, you know, uh, Church of Ireland, Presbyterian, Methodist, and the Orange Order would, would, would bring them together as a... An organisation who, I suppose, would commemorate every year William of Orange and the victory at the Battle of the Boyne, but but also was, I suppose, a society where business would would, would get done. No, no Catholics were allowed to join, no women were allowed to join. This was a, a, a Protestant male organisation. So they pulled together various different communities uh, across Northern Ireland. <clears throat> I've got a story about the Orange Order. Go on. So, uh, again, as a English person, um, I I had never heard of the the Orange Order. I just didn't enter my head. I d- I had no idea what they were. Um, I moved to Glasgow, um, which sort of shares a lot of its uh, beliefs uh, with um, Ireland. There's there's a strong connection there, isn't there, between um, the Scots mm. and the Irish. 
Um, and there was this orange march sort of walking down the street. And I had, I literally had no idea what it was. I, I was trying to read it and I was um, like, read all the signs. There was, there was massive pictures of William of Orange, um, which at that time I didn't know anything about. And um, funnily, like, I, re- I just really wanted to cross the road. Like I was late for something. And I really wanted to get across the road. And I, I, I was just going to go through the middle of them. And I remember I stepped out and this man pulled me back. And he said, do you want to get killed? And pulled me back. I was like, do not walk out in front of them. Like, do not go through them. And um, I was baffled because wow. I'd never seen it before in my life. Um, mm. And this wasn't that long ago. I mean, I was in, I was in my mid-twenties by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, that was my kind of first experience with it. And then I kind of looked it up and I sort of saw that it, it kind of originated um, from sort of from, from, from Ireland and from Scotland and, and sort of more more of the Celtic countries. But yeah, I'd never heard of it before in my life until I mm. moved there. Yeah, and, and, and the marching is that that would be something that they would do to, again, commemorate the Battle of the Boyne and uh their marches would tend to take place what we call marching season july june july august um so they would tend to to go on marches uh really and and at this stage anywhere they wanted today there's there's a parades commission and there has been a parades commission for for a few decades now which which would determine where you can and cannot march uh depending on communities and neighborhoods that that you're marching through yeah because i saw that they would um march deliberately through catholic neighborhoods mm. that mm-hmm. could cause issues um yeah yeah absolutely and and that would be and that uh, those marches would have been the source of so much uh so many so so many riots, I suppose, and acts of violence right the way throughout the Troubles, right the way through to to the end of the 1990s as well. Mm. <clears throat> now, I suppose we're we're almost well. We've got a few other things to, to discuss in the 1920s before we move on to the 1960s. So, one organisation that people think of when they think of Northern Ireland is is the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, and yeah. throughout the whole six counties. Of Northern Ireland, there were before the truce. You'd be looking at uh, there would have been just over two thousand members of the IRA, and uh, during the War of Independence, it might have been up to about four thousand. Um, but by nineteen twenty four, once the War of Independence was over, and Ireland had been divided, and it, you know things had settled down a little bit, the troubles in Belfast were over. By nineteen twenty four. There were about six hundred uh, IRA activists, so their numbers had 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 plummeted. Mm. So the Northern uh, authorities, so the Storm and Current banned commemorations, the sale of uh, any Republican newspapers, the wearing of Easter lilies, the Irish tricolor being hung anywhere. So at this, what we would start to see then was that Republicans who would you know tend to tend to at this stage believe in you know violent armed struggle for a united Ireland, they were in a minority among the Catholic population. They still remained alive in Northern Ireland, but even by 1934, there were 400 members in, in Belfast alone. So they were there, 
but never really at an operative level. Mm. Now, if we if we look at the the police now in in Northern Ireland, they were called the Royal Ulster Constabulary, and they also had a, a group who were called the B Specials. So they were like the the police reserves. So for the police reserves alone, the uh, the British government in London approved. So I'm going to read what they approved for them here. So this is not for a police force, but for a reserve police force. So for 8,000 men, mm. sorry, 8,000 uh, A specials, 25,000 B specials, and 15,000 C specials. So really men who, if needs be, could join the police. 23,000 rifles, 15,000 bayonets, 242 guns, 50 Vickers machine guns, 3,000 revolvers, camping equipment, 150 bicycles, including spare parts, <laughs> signalling equipment, 10 million rounds of ammunition, Mills bombs for barrack defence and motor transport. They even requested an air force with bombs for the police, but the London government align at an air force, uh, which would be separate to, to the RAF. So the police also had a special powers act, which was a sweeping piece of legisl- legislation that allowed arrests without warrant, internment without trial, unlimited search powers, bans on meetings, publications, and these far-reaching catch-all clauses. So this sounds to Um, me like the British are terrified at this point, so that's why they're putting all the resources in to kind of crush this. I think, I mean, the London government, as we know in the 20s, I mean... London had had its own difficulties to deal with. So they were writing checks and not necessarily check, checking what, what was going on. I think the reason why we looked so much at the 1600s is that this settler mentality remained. This The fear, remember we discussed the 1641 rebellion where settlers were, uh, were, were murdered by people. Yeah, yeah. That mentality almost remained. And this, this fear, this... Um, this paranoia, perhaps, that, that there would be a rebellion. It would happen, like the Easter Rising, almost come out of nowhere. The Easter Rising wasn't predicted. So there was this idea that there was a fifth column in society and that all Catholic would support a, a rebellion if it happened. Um, now, what we had discussed, or what I mentioned before, was that Catholics did want the state to fail, but the vast majority of them didn't really want any violence and you know, as we've discussed, were tended to be lower class, you know, professions tended to be closed off to them. Uh, certainly in the 1920s, it was a very small Catholic middle class. So we're really looking at working class people who were just uh, who were just getting by. So um, by 1923, 1924, Northern Ireland is was was stable. And, you know, I, I outlined the Special Powers Act there, which also provided for the death penalty, flogging, uh, you know, real uh, exceptional powers given to any man. It wasn't always used. It was sporadically used. It was used, quite heavy-handed. But, but it was there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Heavy-handed on a population who at this stage hadn't done it. You know, there, there was no reason for, for, mm. for these laws. Now, if we look at uh, Catholics. Now, Catholics after the year 1850... There was a law passed by cardinals in Ireland that Catholics had to be educated in Catholic schools. So the Northern Ireland government passed a law saying that all civil servants and teachers had to take an oath of allegiance to the crown. Now, 
Catholics weren't going to do this. So Catholic schools were created, which were totally separate to state schools, uh, funded differently. And, you know, even in, in Catholic schools, you would have Gaelic games, which were played. Uh, pupils would go to mass. Rugby and cricket would be played in, in state schools, but not in Catholic schools. Now, Catholics would have read and tend to even today read the Irish news, which for decades never even used the words Northern Ireland. They would refer to the six counties. Um, and uh, like I mentioned, the Catholic middle class before the small Catholic middle class would have tended to service the Catholic community, um, be it law, medicine, education, shops, pubs. And um, really, the Northern Catholics weren't really welcomed into, uh, weren't welcomed by the Dublin government either. So Northern nationalist politicians who would go down uh, to Dublin were really given the cold shoulder as well. They would regularly press for invitations to state occasions in Dublin. And sometimes they were given, but they, they weren't welcomed. So Catholics uh, they had in to... Ulster were kind of, uh, they were kind of alienated by not only the Protestants mm-hmm. and the Unionists mm-hmm. in Ulster, but also the Catholics and uh, Republicans in the south of Ireland. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it would be by society as a whole in the south, but it was certainly where the levers of power were being pulled in, in Dublin. There was there was no real desire to to get involved in, in Northern Ireland. There were clauses in in the constitution of the uh, Dublin government which claimed uh, jurisdiction over the six counties of, uh, of Northern Ireland and gave a, a special place to the Catholic Church. So that so, links into what you were saying about it, like it being a cold... What, I mean, what was the, uh, the phrase? It was like a cold place. Oh, the the, the cold house. I mean, yeah, yeah. of course. I, I think all these laws and, you know, the actions of the police and the, all of this together. And, of course, when, when we look at employment, there was, uh, you know, 10% Catholic representation in the lower reaches of the civil service. And, mm-hmm. you know, larger firms would have uh, workforces that were 90% uh, Protestant. And, you know, Catholics tended to be, uh, you know, in, in, in status occupation. So the cold house would refer to the Northern Ireland government when it came to what the government in the south of Ireland were doing um, in the free state, which then became in 1949, the Republic of Ireland. While there was almost because it had been created in a state of revolution, there was the revolutionary aim to reclaim Northern Ireland. Uh this was never really acted upon because they were really dealing with their own ends. Mm. And, you know, most governments who are created after a revolution don't do very well. And, and that was the case for, for the, for the Irish government, you know, okay. they, they, they introduced trade wars with Britain, even though Britain was their number one trading partner. So, you know, this was a place where, uh, the government didn't have a particularly good track record either. Uh, but of course, it was nowhere near the compared. There was no, you know, special police force. There was no, uh, uh, there was none of the laws that that Northern Ireland would have had. It was just more a uh, a state who was who was trying to find its feet, especially after after centuries of having zero political representation. To then rule your own country, of course, is 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 a huge challenge. Yeah. So, 
I suppose this this takes us to that's the end, I guess, of, of the creation of Northern Ireland. But I think that phrase then from David Trimble about the cold house, that's really what life for, for Catholics in Northern Ireland became. I, I, I hope that the Northern Ireland government would fail, but very rarely, very rarely acting upon it. Really, the uh, the powers that be being openly, openly anti-Catholic. So there we go. What questions do you have? I've just got up a map of Ireland, so I'm 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 aware of sort of the counties and the areas. So there's areas we've got counties within the areas, but so not all of Ulster is Northern Ireland, is it? Mm, that's right. So you've got three so you've got, counties: so you've Donegal, got part of Donegal, Donegal. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense. Okay. Because in my head, I was like, oh, well, Ulster covers the entire sort of northern section of Ireland. But I know for a fact that the UK or Northern Ireland isn't that whole area. So, okay, that makes sense. Mm, mm. Um, Which is why it's called Northern Ireland, not Ulster. Yes. Yes, it makes sense. Mm. So, Mm. I mean, is it... I mean, obviously you were brought up in... Um, Ulster, Northern Ireland. Um, <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot now. Would you see yourself as British or Irish or other? Where Where do you? God, you are putting me in the spot, aren't you? What, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. No, that's absolutely fine. No, I'd see myself as as Irish, and okay. I and I was I was yeah raised you know Catholic family, and uh, yeah, you would. You would see yourself as Irish, as did most people in the community that you know that, that I grew up in. You know, you would follow Gaelic sports. You know, you would follow the Republic of Ireland football team. So, and, what are Gaelic uh, sports? Yeah, so, well, so you've got you've got the two main ones. You've got Gaelic football and you've got hurling. Which okay. uh, let me see. I so I I teach in in England, obviously, and I describe hurling to the pupils that I teach as imagine hockey. But like it's good, so you can like pick up the ball and you don't have to use one side of the stick. And uh, you've you've got they use the same pitch and, and the same sort of post. So you've got like football, but with two big poles coming up, like in rugby. Okay. And uh, fifteen aside, and I suppose Gaelic football would be the more popular one. I suppose you might say it as a mix between basketball, rugby, and football. Now. These sports are huge deal culturally in Ireland, absolutely massive. So, as I said before, you know, alluded to it, each county would have, uh, you know, would have their teams and you would support your county. But within the context of Northern Ireland, generally, almost exclusively, actually, members of the Protestant community, even if they lived in Antrim or Down or Derry or whatever, they wouldn't follow Gaelic games because they're almost seen as exclusively... uh, well, they would have used to have been exclusively Irish and Catholic, but now just an Irish. What we would see is cultural nationalism, this idea that you you would maintain your, your Irish culture. So and, it's an entire uh, culture clash in mm, one place, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, did you... So, so Sorry. Sorry, go on. No, I was going to no, say, no, go did, on. You, did, you, did you feel... Did you feel other 
because you were in uh, Northern Ireland and part of the UK when you sort of saw yourself as Irish or did you kind of just get on with it and that was kind of that was how it was and yeah does that make sense Mm, absolutely um that's a really good question i uh for me personally i mean would you have seen yourself as other yeah yeah i i I guess yeah I, i i guess you would have done but I suppose everyone's childhood is is normal and is normal to them and and totally unique to them. So yeah, you you would just see yourself as 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 Irish and you know and certainly as a child anyway, as you know as Catholic and uh, you would almost exclusively through you know schools and football clubs and you know uh, other I suppose clubs or groups or whatever that you do as a as a child would generally be within that sort of Catholic community. Mm. So, so you've got total segregation. And, you know, I'd, I'd be a, I'd, I'd be from, you know, a middle-class background. And, you know, I went to a grammar school. But even at that, you know, education was and is generally still very segregated. So, uh, so what's that? There's lovely, lovely upbringing. It, it, it was still, you know, uh, still very... Uh, and w- within that sort of Catholic community, mm-hmm. I suppose. So when you came, oh, sorry, I'm just throwing all these questions at you because I'm fascinated. When you sort of came over to sort of England, um, did you find it uh, strange? Because obviously we don't have that here. We don't have the massive culture clash in, um, f- f- for whatever reason. I mean, like I don't i mean the only sort of catholic people that i've met tend to be from ireland or who have moved over from ireland or i've met them when i've been over in ireland or scotland Mm. um so we kind of don't get that other was it strange that people don't have it's not part of their everyday life here um, no, I mean, that's, I moved over about mid twenties, so it's sort of got on my life really. Because <laughs> something that um, struck me. I suppose. What, what, no, I was going to say when when I moved down to Dublin for university, that would have been more of a culture shock because no one there cared. You know, you'd sort of come down very sort of passionate. Uh, you know, politically involved. Uh, not that I was a member of any political party, but you know, you you would take a keen interest in politics. People in Dublin didn't didn't give two hoots at all mm. and that was frustrating but um but yeah you just kind of got on my life i suppose it was went to university you know, just, yeah you, you, you get on with it, yeah yeah something that struck me even when i i did go there and actually um i was there with my uh catholic friends um that i had met in london um uh, we've been friends for a while but anyway they moved back to 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 northern ireland and um I there was very much still a conversation of um Protestant Catholic and even when we were on a night out like people were out having a cigarette and um people were talking about it like youngsters were just I mean it wasn't aggressive at all like but people were very mm. much like well I'm I'm Protestant and I'm Catholic and it was it was it was still very much a topic that was present um and mm. I guess mm-hmm. that stems from um, either being raised in that um, 
sort of that time in the 90s or I mean there were people there that were definitely not old enough to remember that but their their parents obviously were so you kind of learn from your parents don't you about what's you kind of form a lot of your opinions from what your parents yeah but I I I think that in in Ireland and then specifically in you know the sort of six counties of of Northern Ireland what you have is that the reason why I started in the 1500s and the 1600s chatting in, in this for this podcast is because that collective memory influences the present so much. So I don't think it wouldn't necessarily be a conscious choice, really, of any parent to, you know, continue this idea of, uh, of you know, a divide or whatnot. But but communities do have that collective memory, don't mm. they? And, um, and I, I think that's why uh the, the collective memory i guess goes so far back that something like the battle of of the boyne in the late 1600s is a very alive issue uh and in, in the streets of northern ireland every, every summer you know every 11th of july night and every 12th of july when there's marches so you do have that and in the same way that the the 1916 rising uh you know over a century ago was almost the finding I don't say myth because it happened but you know that idea of the the, the finding the finding myth or legend of, of a civilization that's almost the modern one for Ireland. So I think that history does play a very, very active role. And I, I suppose that it would come as no surprise to me that people in the smoking area would, would, would be chatting about that kind of thing. And I'm sure you might have had one or two English comments as well being over in Belfast. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it, it was nothing um, sort of untoward. It was, it was, I didn't ever feel intimidated yeah. or, or anything but it was it was a very current mm. topic still um it's interesting that yeah yeah uh, that that you say obviously we started way back when didn't we i always say this so so you know we kind of all turn into our parents eventually whether we like it or not <laughs> um <laughs> in some form or another so you'll have a phrase that they say or you'll mm. end up doing this or whatever like how far back does that go? Do you know what I mean? There might be a phrase that you say that your great, 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 great times, whatever, used to say in the Tudor mm. times. It's mad, isn't it? Like mm. how that's sort of been mm. passed down um, and maybe not mm. consciously either. So yeah, like what you're saying is it's it's there, although it's not necessarily present. It's kind of, we've all got our... Um, sort of quirks of where we sort of inherit our environmental DNA, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and then even now, it's funny that we're, we're into the modern uh, era now, I suppose, for the starting for the start of the Troubles. And even now, we're, we're looking at 19, you know, 1963, which is, uh, God, you know, it's... <laughs> a long time ago but i suppose when it comes to the history of the troubles that's that's incredibly recent mm. so i mean my if, my mother was born in 1963 should kill me for saying that but um yeah so it's not um <laughs> it's not actually well, it's not that long ago it's 57 years ago is that right mm. something like that 57 58 yeah 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 um well, in I mean, the in the grand well, scheme so, of, so, of history, that's nothing, is it really? Yeah, that's true. It's a blink of an eye. Um, but if if we look at Northern Ireland, I suppose when we think of the nineteen sixties, this decade of 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 huge change, revolution, etc., Northern Ireland was, I suppose, it was no different. So in in nineteen sixty three, 
there was a new, almost seen as reforming prime minister. I mentioned him before, Captain Terence O'Neill. He was landed gentry, went to Eton, served in World War Two, in which actually both his brothers were killed. He was finance minister for seven years, but he he was seen as too English. So he was seen even as an outsider within unionist circles. He had an mm-hmm. English accent. He had an English wife. Um, so he he had quite a difficult task on his hands because you know we all know the change that was there in the 60s and you know when we think of kennedy in in america and the change that he represented uh he was an irish catholic president so there was this sense that that there was a bit of change in the air 